Research coming out of Hat Future Lab shows that one in three meetings globally is considered a bad meeting. And if you look, take a sort of financial impact on that, for every thousand people going into a meeting that's considered a waste of time, that's costing an organization over $10 million, not just in lost productivity, but in lost energy, lost focus, and lost attention. Welcome to the Beyond Speaking podcast from Premier Speakers Bureau, featuring in-depth conversations with the world's most in-demand keynote speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord. Welcome to the Beyond Speaking podcast. Today, we have Terrence Mowry. Uh, Terrence is the founder of Hack Future Labs. He's the MIT entrepreneur, mentor, and residence and the visiting professor at IE Business School. Uh, Terrence has been published in The Economist, Forbes, Reuters, Huffington Post, and Wired, and he's delivered keynotes for places like Visa, Facebook, VMware, Capital One, HSBC, and uh, is just somebody who is um, uh, leading and helping people all around the world. So Terrence, thank you so much for joining us. Brian, it's great to join the show. Yeah, well, I'm glad to have you on. I love getting this kind of big perspective. We were just talking off air of about you having this Italian upbringing because, you know, Maori, you know, where does that come from? Yes. Um, having kind of that background of people from different countries, how do you think that has shaped you as a person? I think it's pivotal. I think, you know, we're at a stage now where you can't explore a new world with an old map. And there's this <laughs> idea that when you speak a different language, you become a different person. And I feel that when I start speaking you know, for the first 24 hours when I go back to Italy, I'm still British. But for example, <laughs> I'll go to get a coffee, but the first thing I'll do is try and form a queue. And that does not work in Italy. <laughs> and it takes about half an hour to get a macchiato. But yeah. Day two, something happens to my hand. And uh, if our audience can do this, you're half fluent <laughs> in Italian. But I go back to the same <laughs> coffee shop on day two and order a macchiato within seconds and become fully Italian. So I think, I think languages, different perspectives, uh, empathy, you know, I think all of this is amplified when you visit different countries or you have uh, a rich cultural uh, heritage. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. How has uh, speaking in different parts of the world changed your perspective as well? So it's not just the language you speak, um, it's, it's kind of the message you're bringing with it. How has having that global perspective uh, uh, shaped how you uh, deliver these messages on leadership, change, and, and resilience to different audiences? I think uh, it's such a, an important point because actually every part of the world is completely unique and nuanced, as unique as, they, as my fingerprint. And so, for example, if I'm speaking in Asia, you know, there is a lot more hierarchical, it's a lot more bossed. Uh, and so some of the key messages that we'd be using in the States or in Europe don't necessarily apply, they need to be adapted. And so I think that kind of personalization is absolutely key. Um, for example, recently I was in uh, Bangkok and over there, it's very hierarchical uh, and they would be looking for leaders to be very top down and autocratic in order for them to be credible. Obviously, if you go to somewhere like Sweden, it's completely the opposite. You have to flip this leadership style. It's more about care and co-creation. So I think for me, that's an intellectual challenge. It's part of that really respecting that uh, diversity and differences are superpowers, and we need to respect that. We, you know, your big message or one of your big messages for 2023 is be the change. What do you mean by that? Yes. Look, I think everything starts as an act of imagination. So every business starts as, as an act of imagination. And today is the slowest it will ever be in our lifetime. Depending on your personality type and leadership style, that's either terrifying or exhilarating. Uh, and everybody's talking about the change and our brains and our bodies are tired. Zoom fatigue, change fatigue, 
anticipatory anxiety about the future. So the idea here is, you know, be the change means you know, performing for today, but also really transforming for tomorrow. It's this curiosity to learn, courage to unlearn, and clarity to focus. And learning helps you evolve, and unlearning helps you keep up as the world evolves. In Japan, they call this henka, which means transcendence and perpetual learning. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, for any organization, any human being to, not, uh, to thrive in the 21st century, you really have to adopt this learning uh, attitude of leading and embracing perpetual learning. What steps do you take personally for perpetual learning? So for me, a couple of big ones is, number one, reading fiction books. The science is unequivocal. Some of the studies I'm working on right now at MIT show that those that read fiction books are 3x more empathetic and are, are able to see different perspectives that hold a, a sort of more generalist perspective rather than a narrow perspective. So reading fiction is a big deal. It activates imagination, empathy, and compassion, and the ability to adopt a number of different perspectives. Uh, and number two is to actually drive yourself out of your comfort zone. You know, what is change? Well, it's driving yourself out of your comfort zone in a really deliberate and intentional way. And the great question to ask yourself is, when's the last time you learned something for the first time? Uh, for me, it was salsa dancing. And it was terrifying. I, I gave it a go and I had to really stretch out of my comfort zone. But by doing that, you activate all sorts of really important resources in your mind. The curiosity, courage, the ability to think differently. And so I think learning, uh, unlearning uh, is a really important priority right now and an imperative and a, and a muscle that we need to practice deliberately every day. Well, so what is unlearning then? So I know, I, I, I guess is it, as different from forgetting, or, or how would you describe unlearning? Unlearning is almost like a sort of big, I think, institutional blind spot. We're obsessed with complexity, with complexity, uh, so adding you know, information to information, and we're suffering epidemic levels of information overload. In fact, Nobel laureate Herbert Simon said, too much information leads to a poverty of attention. And so unlearning, really, what I mean by that is unlearning the always done ways uh, the outdated ways of thinking, outdated assumptions about your business that have gone off like yogurt in the fridge. It's about rejecting our taken for granted norms. Because here's the scary truth. Your next biggest competitor could come from a completely different industry or vertical to yours in the next five years. We know that competitive lines are being redrawn. Companies are dying younger. And so in order to not just keep up but stay ahead of the speed of change, we need to also practice deliberately unlearning the always done ways and um i guess what's the what's the best way of doing that like just because it's, i guess it's easier said than done sometimes you don't even know like i know you wrote something along the lines of uh how do you see your blind spots which seems to be a little uh hard to do you have by nature you can't see your blind spots uh what are the best ways to put that into practice we're blind to our own blindness. Uh, last year, I spent uh, a, a ton of time working with one of the world's biggest pharma companies. They've got over 100,000 employees on, on the planet, and they're suffering epidemic levels of BMI, not body mass index, bureaucratic mass index. Mm -hmm. And most big organizations of 500 people or more can relate to this. It's too many meetings. It's too many broken processes. It's ways of working that no longer serve the purpose and don't create value, they destroy value. For this pharma company, what they did was introduced an unlearning initiative. It was called Lightspeed Activation. 
And what that looked like was a 30-day challenge where everybody in the organization, vertically and horizontally, was empowered to share stories of unlearning in action. Remember, plans inform, stories inspire. And so the big idea, the framing here, was that in meetings, in one-to-ones, in discussions, people were empowered to share stories of a problem or a challenge that they decided to frame for unlearning. For example, crushing bureaucracy, killing meetings that no longer function, uh, doing things in a faster or more augmented way to save, uh, save time and create value. And those milestones were celebrate, celebrated in a meaningful way to really activate that, that courage that uh, in, in Finland they call this sisu, a sort of Viking spirit to be able to not just um, learn, but unlearn and let go and reject old ways that are holding us back and impeding our strategy. Remember, one of the winning imperatives to thrive in this 21st century is to act at the speed of your customer. Mm-hmm. And most organizations are forgetting that important principle. What are some of the things that you have uh, unlearned or sort of cut away in the last you know, few years at uh, Hack Future Lab at your company? Two big ones come to mind straight away. Number one is too many meetings. Research coming out of Hat Future Lab shows that one in three meetings globally is considered a bad meeting. And if you look, take a sort of financial impact on that, for every thousand people going into a meeting that's considered a waste of time, that's costing an organization over $10 million, not just in lost productivity, but in lost energy, lost focus, and lost attention. So uh, action number one was to... Uh, delete 50% of meetings to give back people's autonomy, empowerment, and freedom. I think there's too much fake empowerment around the world. What I mean by that is people hear a good rhetoric, but in reality, we're still doing many things the old ways, including running meetings. Number two was to cut down the emails. Again, Hat Future Lab research shows, and we know this in our own lives as well, we're drowning in data, we're drowning in information. 83% of people struggle to focus on what really matters. 76% of leaders say they spend too much of their week on shallow work, shallow leadership, shallow strategy at the expense of deep work and deep leadership, higher value and higher, uh, higher outcome. So we had less emails. We had days where we had no emails. And again, that created more cognitive bandwidth for us to focus on focus. So these are two very simple hacks that really made a difference. They gave us more meta attention to focus on higher value work. And we got to feel more alive and bring strategy to life in a visceral way. And I I think a lot of times what may be the case um, is that people are afraid of change, that they will cut the wrong thing. Uh, I I know you you say also, you know, not taking a risk is a risk. Um, How do you get people to do that? Um, Get the, I guess, be emboldened to take risks. We're working in an operating environment now where the speed of change is only accelerating. And I think a key observation that I I take from around the world, working with organizations, is that we always overestimate the risk of trying something new, leading in a new way, working in a new way. And we always underestimate the risk of standing still. And I think one of the, uh, a great way to really scale up that psychological safety is to focus on iterative over fixed to focus on context over control, to focus on resilience over fear, and to give people that platform to be able to experiment, to explore. That way, you activate that perpetual learning mindset in a very enterprise-driven way, and you also boost up that sense of psychological safety, this extra credit to go out there 
and practice what I call ROI, not just return on investment, return on intelligence, return on imagination. Imagine this new human metric, a cognitive metric, where everybody gets to go to work and do their highest value cognitive driven work. That is a really competitive, sustainable advantage. Absolutely. I'm curious to know uh, what are, and a lot of speakers have different uh, responses to this, but what's a risk that you wish you would have taken, but you didn't? What a great question. And I think, you know, I met with Dan Pink a couple of months ago. He's written a great book called No Regrets. And we always regret what we haven't done. And if there was one piece of advice I'd give to my younger self and to give to everybody listening today and watching us would be to adopt that iterative mindset. We're programmed and hardwired from an early age to prioritize certainty over everything else. Mm -hmm. And by when you focus on certainty over everything else, you miss out on adjacent possibilities. I'll give you an example. You know, many years ago, I was working in the advertising industry. I had my whole life mapped out. It was very linear. <laughs> One day I walked into a, into a shop and my life changed. Why? A driver had lost control of his car and drove his car into the shop. People thought it was a bomb attack at the time. I woke up under the car and I nearly lost my life that day. Wow. But if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be talking to you today because what it gave me was this cognitive and emotional shock. I had three months in hospital to think. And you know, it's a funny thing, Brian, when you're out of the office and out of the building, because most buildings are designed to make us feel tired and sleepy, by the way, they're innovation killers. When I was out of the building and I had all this time to reflect as I was recovering from this accident, I realized that I was no longer aligned with my values. I realized that I was no longer on the path that I wanted to be. And what it provided me was with the emotional courage, the bandwidth to make that adjacent pivot, to do something different that I knew I, I, I knew that I wanted to prioritize in my life. It was my North Star. But if the accident hadn't happened in a sort of counterintuitive way, perhaps I'd still be working in the advertising industry. So I think the key learning here is be careful of always prioritizing certainty over everything else. We want to do that, but actually there is the wisdom of uncertainty as well. When you have the opportunity to experiment, when you have the opportunity to turn your spotlight on a, on a hunch or a pain point, that's where the next idea is. That's where the next opportunity lies. That's where the next growth engine is. And that's a, a, a golden thread that I've seen throughout my um, work with organizations around the world. Now, is that what spurred your, your focus on perpetual learning or, or where did that come from? I think, well, first of all, I've always been driven by curiosity and by learning. I think I'm hardwired to get bored quite easily as well with the status quo. And so I think it's uh, part of my DNA. But also there's this idea that, you know, if we're lucky, we get about 80 years to, uh, to live. We were talking before we started the interview of, uh, you know, different ages 80, 95, 100. I recently interviewed a 100-year-old lady who loves to learn and unlearn. She was born in 1923. Not a great year to be born, by the way. It was just after the First World War, the Spanish flu, which took over 50 million lives, Great Depression. But her dream was always to learn. And at the age of 83, she had a family meeting, and she told her family that she wanted to study English literature at university. And the family tried to put her off, but she was determined. She activated that purpose. And she, when she applied, she thought she might get rejected, but she got accepted. And when she graduated, she was twice as old as the professor. Now, you <laughs> think this would be the end of the meeting, the end of the journey. But once you've activated that curiosity to learn and the courage to unlearn, it's unstoppable. At the age of 88, she had another family meeting. It's a true story. 
and she did a master's. And during that time, she had a terrible stroke, but she had that resilience and she survived. And for her 100th birthday, she had a family meeting. You can imagine the anxiety levels of the family. And she told the family that she wanted to do a parachute jump, a tandem dive at 15,000 feet. And she did it twice. And when I interviewed her for my latest book, The 3D Leader, I asked her, what's her secret? And she said, like Michelangelo, the famous painter, Ancora Imparato, it's an Italian word, which means, and yet I am still learning. Mm. And I said, what do you want to do when you're 101 for your birthday? And she smiled, she looked at me and she said, I'm lucky to still be alive. I want to swim with great white sharks. If she can do it, if she can learn, we can all learn. <laughs> you got to love that boldness and that, that uh, you know, something we can learn uh, of, of just not being satisfied with where we are. It's amazing. I think it's this idea. And, you know, if you're a CEO or a director listening to our interview today, it's this idea of, you know, everybody being empowered to reject the always done ways. You know, I talk about in my keynotes, I talk about the difference between cultures of curiosity versus cultures of conformity. And cultures of curiosity uh, accept and embrace ideas and thinking that challenge the status quo. They're a catalyst for change and accelerated transformation. Cultures of conformity reject ideas that challenge the status quo. And they are the cause of inertia. Uh, and the baseline fallacy, which is assuming that your strategy tomorrow will be the same, your, your winning strategy today will serve you for tomorrow. And of course, we know that that's no longer true. One of the most popular questions we get is, is like, what does the future of work look like? And I want to kind of change that for you a little bit. If, if someone has this, this change mindset, what can the future of, of work look like? It's an incredibly empowering narrative. And one of the calls to action for leaders this year is to ask themselves this question. You know, if we meet again in one year's time, what would your future of work success headlines look like? What would be the boldest milestones, the timelines that you would want to share with me? What would be the changes in mindset, culture set, behaviors that you'd, you'd need to start activating today in order to get to those future of work success headlines? And the answer to the question is it's fluidity. You can decide what that future of work narrative looks like. It's not prescriptive and it changes from culture to culture and enterprise to enterprise. But I think there are some common areas in three big, three big buckets that will be uh, universal. And this is very much driven by this kind of human agenda. Number one will be, we all want to believe in something. So imagine it's a believing bucket. What's our sense of mission? Do we feel that our work makes a difference? Do we believe in the bigger purpose and vision of that organization? So believing is a big bucket that would drive the future of work and the future of cultures as well. Number two is belonging. We have an innate need to feel part of something. Um, in Africa, they call it Ubuntu. It's a Swahili tribal word. It means I am because we are. And leadership is about we, not me. So belonging, part of something. How do we become bolder and braver and better than the sum of our parts. And then finally, number three is becoming, that perpetual state of beta, curiosity to learn, the courage to unlearn. This is an alchemy of three buckets that if you can combine together, will have a 10x effect on any future of work strategy and any future of work hybrid office. Out of those three things, which do you think is the easiest or quickest to implement? I think believing is really important I think they're all tricky, to be honest, because this research coming out of Hat Future Lab and MIT and Gallup 
shows that we have epidemic levels of quiet quitting. Uh, for example, uh, in China, they call it tanking, which means lying down flat against the uh, organization. Uh, and we know that you know, when people mentally quit the job but don't tell you, it has a terrible impact on productivity and engagement. But I think believing in something requires activating courageous stretch conversations and really getting people to activate that clear line of sight in terms of what they do and how it contributes to the wider mission. Belonging and becoming as well. I think they're all tricky and they all require a new type of leadership, what I call a human-centric leadership. Kind of talking about leadership and mentorship. I know you're uh, the anti-MIT uh, entrepreneur mentor in residence uh, at the IE Business School. Uh, to you, what is the difference between mentorship and leadership? I think leadership is like a contact sport. It's, it's direct. Uh, you're really elevating uh, and driving context, engagement, productivity, high execution certainty, and really trying to achieve that high ROI, not just return on investment, but return on intelligence, return on integrity, return on ideas. Mentorship is more informal. For example, I mentor a number of executives around the world, and we meet perhaps once a quarter, and I'm giving specific advice to that, that individual's situation or challenge. So mentoring, I think it's informal, it's discussion-driven, and you're, the frequency of contact is much less. Leadership is you're trying to bring everything, uh, make everything visceral. How do we make the invisible visible? How do we, and how do we make not just fast, choice, fast choices, but the wisest choices? How do we uh, activate uh, collective mindsets to be able to drive ourselves out of our comfort zones? And how do we really focus on value creation and act at the speed of the customer? So I think leadership is a lot more strategic. It's a lot more mission-driven, and it, it, it requires thousands of multiple contact points in a really deliberate way every day. All right. So last question. Let's say we're sitting around and this is one of the two out of three meetings that actually is good. So not the bad one. This is one of the good meetings. And you're doing a, you know, a year from now, uh, leaders, where should they be a year from now where they aren't right now? I think there's three uh, takeaways here. Number one is who are we? One of the biggest blind spots is that everybody's overmanaged and underled. And so we need to go big on context setting, direction setting, pace setting, culture setting and strengthen identity. So who are we? Really get cl align clarity vertically and horizontally. So we have a strong sense of identity of what we really stand for. There's a lot of mission creep, a lot of strategy drift. And so I think uh, this is something that doesn't happen by accident, it happens by design. Number two is how do we operate? Again, prioritizing simplicity over complexity. Now, one of the biggest paradoxes that every organization faces is that growth creates complexity, but complexity kills growth. So in terms of operation, what is our operating DNA? How do we go big on empowerment, on autonomy, and on creating directly responsible individuals that can make decisions? 20% of leaders say they make good decisions. The other 80% don't. It's a really big institutional blind spot. So that's number two, how do we operate? Number three is how are we, how are we gonna grow? That's about scalability, new growth engines, but also unlearning old ways of working that, have, that no longer serve the future. So who we are, how we operate, and how we grow would be a great platform to benchmark yourselves against in 12 months time. Really thinking about those future success headlines that you want to 
launch, scale, and sustain in a meaningful and human-designed way. Well, Terrence, thank you so much for joining us and, and being guest here and sharing about uh, perception, relearning, unlearning, which is uh, something we probably don't do too, uh, as much as we should, Yes, and, uh, and just giving us this look at the future. So, Terrence, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and then if you're... Thank you. Oh, yes. And so if, uh, for those watching and listening, make sure to uh, subscribe, rate, and review. And then um, also check Terrence out at premierspeakers.com. That's Mary, M-A-U-R-I. So Terrence, thanks again so much for joining us. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. To learn more about today's guests, visit premierspeakers.com. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen.